1: Well, we've gone all hearts and chocolates <laughs> and roses on the Rugby Tonight podcast this week. Uh, I am Nick Mullins having my dream Valentine's night
2: <laughs> with. It's my day. I'm Hugo Monier.
1: Hugo, so much to talk about over, um, over the next half an hour or so. But there's only one place we can start. And now we know for sure, officially, it was. A try. World Rugby have confirmed.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, this story's kind of dragged out over the last few days. Um, I'm pleased World Rugby have come out, and that's kind of engendered a little bit of a conversation.
1: They've, I think- not, they've not bagged the TMO. They've not bagged old Glenn Newman
2: by, by saying, you made a mistake, son. No, um, I don't want to sound hypocritical because the one thing I always like is transparency, especially from the highest level. There's so many occasions where you never get anything. And now we've got a response. People saying it's a little bit harsh how he accepts that and takes that. Um, I don't know, but I love the fact that we've now been informed. But what I will say about that try no try we now know it should have been a try I don't think it would have impacted on the end result I just felt felt as if England had enough gears which they could have gone to Um, tactically they were just brilliant Um, but it's good to have final clarity over that. Do you know what we're not going to do
1: because if anybody hasn't heard one of the billion podcasts that have talked about this over the last couple of days then you won't struggle to find them we are not going to talk about the incident I think Everybody agrees, apart from maybe one or two, that it was a try. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and now that's, that's been confirmed by World Rugby. What we can talk about is what's to be done and, and how, if we can, we make sure that this never happens again. What do, you, what do you reckon? What do we need to do to improve the system?
2: Well, I just think there is a bit of a disconnect in quality and conversation, communication between the refs and the TMOs. We often talk about when English guys go out to France for European Champions Cup that they don't have the ability to be able to talk in French and slightly too colloquial. Well, at the weekend for Jerome Garces, I'm sure he would have found that slightly difficult trying to connect and understand and communicate with a Kiwi guy he probably only met one or two days before. So that's not good enough for me. We're talking about a premier competition, lots of casual supporters or fans tuning into the Six Nations, and at the moment, that system just isn't gold standard. As to whether this suggestion is doable, I'm not quite sure. But what frustrates me is when I see top-quality referees on the side of the pitch. It's essentially, their assistant referees. And every decision that's made, whether they put their flag out or a referee goes to them, they just end up being message boys. Because if I'm John Lacey and I come to you as Nigel Owens, Nigel Owens, what have you seen? I've seen an incident... That couple of rucks ago, goes, thanks for that, Nigel, we're going to go to the truck. The second most important official is now the TMO. So as to why we don't get top quality referees in the truck kind of baffles me a little bit because the top referees are top referees because they get the fewest decisions wrong. It's interesting because I don't think we have an issue with it in the
1: the Aviva Premiership. I think generally speaking... 99.9 99.9 times out of 100, the TMO gets it right in yep. the Premiership. It becomes an issue, it seems to me, increasingly, at Test match level, which doesn't make sense.
2: Yeah, and it really shouldn't, because in the Premiership, where you've got to spread your referees right across six games, you don't have that during the Six Nations. And it's, I guess it's been given a huge amount of attention, one, because England were a team that was involved, and we've got huge media following, and also, because it's a funner week, but... I do hope World Rugby coming out of this statement, just look at that process. Of course, there's going to be human error, but the process for me isn't as good as what it should be. And if we're marketing ourselves as a team, as a sport, who are on the front pages and they will occupy that space for the next two months, let's give people the best view of what our game is.
1: What impact would Lee Halfpenny's late withdrawal have on England's kicking strategy?
2: A huge impact, I firmly believe that. Lee Halfpenny, I think one of his biggest qualities has been able to marshal that backfield. And considering that Josh Adams and Steph Evans are both massively inexperienced, he would have been the general back there, and Wales lacked a general. Can, I know he can play at 15, but hadn't trained there all week. Patchell had his form at 15, but was selected at 10. And for me, from an English perspective, they they sniffed blood and they were just ruthless in implementing their game plan. It was a wonderful masterclass display between Ford and Farrell, just being able to manipulate and find space. Between the two of them, the aerial pressure... Um, been able to find the space. For those back three members, they would have just been suffocated and felt pressure on pressure for the opening quarter.
1: We got that. There'd been a lot of talk about whether Halfpenny was going to play in the build-up to the match on the mo- on that Saturday morning. We got final confirmation from the WYU an hour before kickoff. off um, For the first time, as I was tip-exing out Lee Halfpenny's name and putting um, Anscombe's name in, I suddenly saw Steph Evans and Josh Adams not as attacking threats, but as potentially defensive weaknesses. All of a sudden, without half-penny, that back three looks inexperienced at test level.
2: Yeah, it really does. I think, you know, you take out that quality out of any international side, you're going to struggle, especially with the inexperienced wingers. But Eddie Jones often talks about test players, and of course, Steph Evans, Josh Adams are... But on a rainy day away from home, you need to do your basics right. And they just weren't able to do that. Some of that was down to the quality of the kicking. Um, some of that was down to inexperience in that back three and working them as a pendulum. I know how difficult that can be. And the other part was just down to the pressure. Mm. After one ball's gone up in the air and you've dropped it, and I've been in positions, I had a horror show against Argentina playing 15. Every single time a ball goes up, it makes you that much more nervous. And then you're kind of doing things and overcompensating so, 20 minutes into the game, those boys would just have been feeling suffocated. And fair play to England, because even when there was time to go to the width and exploit some overlaps, they just kept kicking. And I could get the sense of frustration in the crowd. Play, play with the ball. But that's what Test Rugby is about. You see a weakness, you go for it. And England were very good at it.
1: And it stresses other parts of... The opposition game as well, and 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 Rhys Patchell was not a shadow of the player that we'd seen the previous Saturday because he's being put into situations he's not been in uh, until that point, and even as early as the second minute and Johnny May's try, you're looking at Johnny May running in and wondering where Josh Adams is.
2: Yeah, I, I thought as if. Number one, the three aspects of that try. So Anthony Watson, why was he selected? Okay, he's brilliant, he's quick, but he's athletic. And aerially, he's very good. He wins the ball back. Farrell selected because he can see the space and his execution is better than anyone else. Johnny May selected to score tries. And those three combining together was perfect. But Josh Adams has been out of position, and he was out of position, I thought it was a consequence of all the aerial pressure they put on. He came across way too far, but... I guess there was an uncertainty as to whether Patchell catches the ball and if it is knocked on and if, if he should be there. To, essentially, what I'm saying is too many thoughts in his mind. Half-penny's there. You leave Malone. You leave him alone. He takes the ball. He makes a good decision. You just play off it. Patchell, there was a there was an uncertainty which fed into him and that knock-on factor played into England's hand, but you've got to credit their execution.
1: Just just talk briefly, and we're, we're going to move on to something else in a minute, but just talk briefly about... Uh a the quality of Farrell's kick under pressure Uh, and what Johnny May did he's never scored a try in the Six Nations he he will have known that he knew the enormity of this moment but in difficult wet conditions to to time that moment to slide down onto the ball with enough force to take you over the line
2: it's really tough well we can compare two different slides Scott Williams who slid and lost momentum. And you look at Johnny Mays, not just the timing of when he slid, but what he also does, he gets his body between the ball. And I think it's Josh Adams who's coming across. So even if Adams was never going to get to that ball first, just because of his position. So that was really clever. So to instinctively think about that, he's got about five or six seconds before he reaches the ball. Automatically he's thinking, I need to get to the ball. Then what do you do? So a lot of it's instinctively, but It was a simple try, but which actually wasn't a simple try. It was made to look simple, very difficult skill, under extreme conditions, wonderful try.
1: And we'll we'll talk a little bit about how close Scott Williams was, but you think the Twickenham pitch and what it's made up of was a significant factor in one player scoring and another not?
2: I do think so. Um, It could rain at Twickenham for the next month, but the surface is extremely hard. I was speaking to Elliot Daly about this on Saturday before the game. And that's only something a home player would actually know. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say, could he have flicked inside? Could he have taken on Underhill? I'm not going to be that guy. I thought he did the right thing. But you look at his trajectory, allied with the tackle, and it was the tackle from Underhill, Super (laughs) Ted. (laughs) (laughs) It was incredible, wasn't it? But, um, But yeah, you look at it again, and he's hit the deck, and... The surface, the momentum's taken sorry, the surf's taking all momentum away from him. Because it's a deso surface, you think in your mind. It's not it's not all natural grass. Exactly. The top level is wet, but beneath that is rock solid. And that's and that's what England want. It's the same at Penny Park, their training base, exactly the same pitch. You know, and, and it's tough as Scott Williams. I reckon he could dive at any club pitch around the country and he goes in. And he'd be coached to do that and you're told to do that. So any kid listening do that just don't do it, time, it.
1: was one of the conversations I had with Shane when we were watching. I said, What does he do differently? and Shane said, He can't do anything differently because if it have gone earlier, it would have been too early. If it have gone late, he'd have been hit upright by Sam Underhill.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't think you can blame Scott Williams. Um, I don't think they'd even review it. I think what you've got to do is just applaud Sam Underhill. You come onto the pitch for one reason it's to have an impact, you know, he's a tackling machine. Technically, we know how good he is, but to have the wherewithal and the instinct to know that he couldn't get two arms around him, he clings on for dear life. He finds an anchor in his midriff, and he has the ability to not just tackle him and cling on, but have the strength to then pull him towards a touchline. It's a fascinating skill. Um, does he ever practice it? Does he train it? No, but in key moments, I've said this before, you don't tackle with your arms, you tackle with your heart. And that's exactly what he did. And that was more of an impact than the try, no try. Wonderful.
1: It was a world-class tackle with amateurville commentary. I hate talking about it. I hate talking about it. I hate talking about it. And when I when I heard you say it was super Ted after 20 <laughs> cans of Red Bull. I thought, no, there's another one of a dozen things that I might have said at the time and didn't. I said, that's quite a good tackle.
2: But, but, but Nick, you, like every other Welsh fan in the stadium, must have found it was a try for all money. I can be honest, I didn't even see
1: Underhill coming. I was, just, I was just watching Scott Williams and waiting for the big Yahoo. And then suddenly, Underhill comes up through the rearview mirror and completely changes everything. You did
2: in a flash, changing the momentum of the game and then at Mike Brown, you know, you're gutted. Could have had, you could have scored a try, but Mike Brown's in your face. Giving <laughs> <given sympathy>. you <laughs> offering. sympathy. <laughs> I don't think you'll be getting a Valentine's Day card from Scott Williams today, that's for sure.
1: Let's let's be critical of England, um, because they'll take the win. But twelve nil up after twenty minutes, would they have expected more?
2: Yep. However, um I've got to just say to Wales. To come away from home, miss three tackles, give away two penalties all game, you're not going to lose many Test matches with those stats. So that has a massive bearing on what on what the final scoreline was because you, you've got someone like Owen Fowler who just keeps that scoreboard ticking over. They weren't able to do that. They struggled at times, and we spoke about the kicking game, to get cheap field position because there wasn't any penalties in it. So that played a big factor. The other factor was Sam Simmons going off. He goes off, big ball carry for them, they bring on Underhill. We just spoke about the impact, but what he lacks is being that ball carrier. So their back row really changed. I thought that's why Ben Teo came on, just to give a little bit of go forward. Yeah, exactly. So they'll be disappointed at that. But I've got to say, um, I did feel as if England just looked in control. They did look in control. That's not them at their very best. And anyone saying, well, off the back of that performance, they won't beat Ireland come round five. Well, they know they've got to be better and they've got a huge amount of growth. If that's England playing at their best, I'd be concerned. I think England got another couple of gears at least.
1: I thought both defenses were just were just immense I And mean, we talked about Wales conceding two penalties which is just off the charts. But the quality of England's defense as well at times because they were being pushed around and and given real problems by Wales.
2: Yeah, they got cut open a couple of times. Shingler who, who who makes a line break, Owen Foul who but gets back. Um y- you make your luck in rugby. I'm not saying that Underhill's tackle was luck. but He put himself in a position to affect something. So even when they got busted or there were line breaks against them, they worked so hard to get back. And I firmly believe when you look at teams' defences, it says a huge amount of the character, the belief, and how tight they are as a team. And that England team looked tighter than ever.
1: Uh, Fallow week this week. We're going to talk about the other matches as well, by the way, in a a moment or two.
2: England recharging, reassessing,
1: uh, and scrummaging against the Georgians, which is what you do. Yeah,
2: I mean for, for, I think people consider Eats, you know, maybe we'll go to the Algarve, play a little bit of golf, just <laughs> just rest up. Not for England. I mean, Joe Marler said that he feels as if they've got the best scrub in the world considering they're a tier 2 team, so, you know, but it's great to see them challenging themselves and hey, they've got some big challenges coming up. They play against Scotland. They can tear Scotland apart in the scrum. France is a huge um, effort and then they're going to potentially go up against the best hired in the world in Tiger Fernand. So a really good exercise.
1: Selection-wise, where do, where do England go from here? We know that Sam Simmons won't play because he got that shoulder injury uh, in the first half against Wales, but Nathan Hughes did play last weekend for, for Wasps at, um, at Quinns. Joe Marler's Back now from his suspension, or he, he will be. Carl Sinclair's knocking around for Quins as well. What do, what do England do? How many changes do you think Eddie Jones will make?
2: Well, Eddie Jones, regardless of results, and he's only ever lost one, um, he tinkers his team. He always makes one or two changes, and he will do come Scotland week. I think Nathan Hughes starts at eight for me. I know he doesn't like us selecting his team, us media folk. I'm not doing it. I'm just making suggestions. But regardless of what anyone thinks, He's so smart because anyone in the media, any fan, any ex-player, any current player, they've heard the interviews. So his message has got out once again around the world. He's, he's a politician
1: because whatever whatever the question, he will set his agenda. Yeah. I was at um, Pennyhill Park a couple of days, on the, on the day of the England team announcement on the Thursday, and I wanted to talk about how Italy had found them out a little bit out wide in Rome the week before. And I'd said, this week, how much thought have you given to your wide-out defence. He was a little bit concerned that Wales, with their back three, might expose it in a way that Italy did. And he went, "Now we're not worried about that, mate. They've got to get there first. And then he launched into Rhys Patchell. And then he, and, and, and that's where the Rhys Patchell stuff came from, oh. off a question about how England are defended against Italy. So it's that disregarding of whatever the question is yeah. to talk about what he wants to talk about. It's very Trumpian. Yeah, and you've
2: got to admire it to a certain extent. Yeah, I guess so. Chris Jones was down there yesterday watching Georgia train, and Eddie bumped into went, mate, you're famous now. Because <laughs> it has gone everywhere. It's been brilliant. But, um, yeah, to your question, uh, Nathan Hughes, I reckon he starts at eight. I think where we'll see the greatest change of potential could be on the bench. Um, you know, having that quality, Joe Marler, Alex Hepburn's been released from the squad this week. So... Of course, Joe Mahler comes in. I think that's fairly obvious. Carl Sinclair, has he has he done enough? I, I'm not really sure. I mean, he, he had 60 good minutes for Harlequins, but he's another option to come back in as well.
1: Yeah, I think Eddie likes likes Harry Williams. Um, what about the two names in the England squad that, that kind of catch the eye a little bit? They won't play any part at, at Murrayfield, but he's brought them in. Gabriel Ivertoy, the big, fast winger from Harlequins. And, and Sam Moore, um, who's come up through the England age grades but it's created a bit of a kerfuffle because he was born in cardiff and he's the son of steve moore and for people as old as me they'll remember steve moore playing for wales
2: yeah it's a funny one i was chatting to rob howley just a month ago and he said that he'd been you know sam Moore had been on his radar and might play a part in the six nations and i don't know i mean clearly eddie's seen him through the age groups. they love him in sale as well that's it some rave reviews about him but you just wonder if are a few Eddie Joe's just flexing their powers, just once again flexing their muscles and saying, right, if they can create damage, if he could go to Wales create damage against us, we'll have him. We'll have him. You see it in football, you know why has he signed him? It's like, oh, actually, it's because I'm an Arsenal. I- Arsenal want him. But we're Tottenham, and we don't want him to go to Arsenal, so we'll have him. We'll have him instead, even if we don't need him. So there's a little bit of that. But Ibertoy, hey, you've commentated on he yeah, was the
1: um, the under twenties junior world championship finals um, in Georgia last summer. Um, have you said that that try he scored against Wales on Friday night? He honestly looks like he's playing against under twelves. I mean, I've never seen anything like it at that at that level. But he's he's the type of winger, big and powerful. That, that Eddie loves and he wonders whether England have got enough of.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because he's had a look at Cock and yeah? Marlon Yard's been out of the squad and they'd be the two wingers that I'd liken to Ibertoye. So off the back of some really good performances at the Under-20s World Cup and that finish.
1: Actually, Warren Gatlin might have some some good selection issues um, for the game in Dublin because Dan is coming back. Lee Halfpenny we're here. Wasn't a serious foot infection. Uh, Liam Williams, Toby Faletau as well, perhaps as an option in the back row. He's got some thinking to do over the next week, sir.
2: I think so. We saw in the autumn that it was a slight transitional period for Wales where they made loads of changes, but that was them just trying this new game plan. We've seen it work perfectly against Scotland. And in fact, I think there's a couple of strands to how Wales' Six Nations have gone. They've been forced into making changes and they've uncovered some decent talent. Now they're getting their superstars back in inverted commas. It just creates an extra bit of competition in training. I reckon two weeks ago, if their team, everyone was fit, full metal jacket, you'd pick their team. Now, I'm not sure you can. George North was on the bench at the weekend. Reese Patchell's now playing well. I think he has to feature somewhere, but where? Because for Scarlets, he kind of edged out Lee Halfpenny after a good game at Bath. Now you've got Lee Halfpenny's come back as Man of Match two weeks ago, Dan Bigger. It's a great place for and one Gatlin to be
1: in. You can't help thinking either. Um, we've talked about the fact that Reese Patchell didn't have his best game at the weekend. If Dan Bigger had been playing in the rain at Twickenham last Saturday, then we're talking about something maybe more significant than a disallowed TMO try.
2: Completely. I, I had this conversation Saturday. If you put in, and I hate to talk hypothetically about injuries because everyone has them, Jonathan Davies, Dan Bigger, Lee Halfpenny in that back line... <laughs> England need to find another way to win. It won't be through kicking. It definitely won't be through kicking. So they've got loads of opportunities. I guess the most interesting one is in the back row.
1: Well, if Valatau's fit, and we were, we were praising 6, 7, and 8 yeah. to the skies on, on, on Saturday, Shingler and Navidi and Moriarty, uh, 12 months ago, if you'd have said, that's the 6, 7, and 8 to go to Twickenham, you'd have gone, oh, okay. Yeah. We'll see how they go. Yeah. But actually, now you're going... It's a, it's
2: a tough call to not one, one of those guys there. Absolutely. I think, you know, they're 15. Yeah, we can chat about it. But we're now talking about a quality 23. They've now developed a bunch of players that can come off the bench and have real impact. Wales are a team that one of their fundamentals their fitness levels. Well, if you've now got top fitness with top players who can come on for the final 20, they're a proper outfit.
1: Did they look fitter than England in that final 20, which is what Warren was expecting?
2: Um, I'm not sure if they look fitter, but by... OK, I'll tell you what, discipline often goes when either you get tired or you've just got poor discipline and make bad decisions, and you often fall off tackles when you're tired, and they didn't do either of those two, so they're extremely fit. Their battle against Ireland uh, in the next round is going to be fascinating.
1: Let's, let's talk about um, Ireland, because that was the first game against Italy. Um, Robbie Henshaw missing now for the rest of the Championship is Is the big headline maker, so before we talk about what they did in dublin what what impact will his absence have on the way that Joe Schmidt sets that side up, tries to play between now and the end?
2: Um, I reckon had that injury been near into the near into the scrum, they may have struggled a sex to Sexton on Murray with Henshaw they 've got Bundy, Aki actually playing so well, Carberry coming back, Keith Ells is an option, so I think they 've got plenty enough strength and depth within their squad to be able to deal with it you 'd rather have Henshaw but that's been remedied because of the quality they've got around it. The concern for me, which is perhaps slightly dissipated, as Tyg Furlong going off? That could have been major. We're hearing that he'll be back fit, and I guess that's where these follow weeks work really well because he wouldn't have been scrummaging against the Georgians yesterday, but he'll probably be on a massage table recovering. So they look tidy. Massive blow for Henshaw after recovering from a pec injury, dislocated shoulder. Such bad luck for him. But yeah, Ireland rumble on.
1: I love um, Sergio Parisse. afterwards. Uh, Ireland play better rugby than England.
2: Um, I mean, it's bold of him to be making statements like that. Um, okay, they were nilled in the first half. got an interesting stat on Parisse. I'm sure you already know it, but if he loses the remaining games of oh, Six yeah. Nations, he'll have 100 losses at international level. So I probably wouldn't be trying to pull apart who's playing better rugby at the minute and keep your own house in order. But yes... They play some good rugby. Conor Murray's try. I tell you what, the interlinking between the backs and the forwards. The the fact there were four or five players in a 15-metre channel, but they never looked overcrowded because their running lines and the handling and accuracy was that good. Conan at the end. it It was just really good. I think, had New Zealand would have scored that try, oh, well, that's why they're the best team in the world. Ireland are playing that kind of level of rugby. My only question about them is... Okay, they weren't great against France, but neither were France. But they, but they had enough in the tank. Wonderful um, drop goal from Jonathan Sexton. Um, they haven't been able. They haven't played a game of a high enough intensity for us to really know where they're at. They'll get that against Wales. So I'm reserving my judgment on them. Um, they've been the most consistent side over the last twelve months. In the northern hemisphere, I'm not talking about results, but in terms of what the team looks like, but they obviously look like a threat, and you could see it in the team selection. There's certainly no complacency in Ireland, um, Ireland, Wales. Let's let's have a have a. It's just impossible to call,
1: isn't it? I mean, it depends to a certain extent on the kind of side that that Wales pick, whether they bring back the big boys, but but that's shaping a while along with. Scotland, England to be to be an absolutely mountainous game in a weekend's time. What
2: great what great weekend of rugby! It's just brilliant, you know. There's something about the tribal nature of these home nations playing against one another, which brings out the best in not just the players but the supporters, the colours, the voices. I was watching um, Scotland France. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just me, but when the flower Scotland went off again, I was humming it. The first time I played at Scotland murrayford we sang our national anthem and then it went on to Scotland. I was humming it again. And I thought, jeez, I'm glad there's no camera on me because Finn Russell got in a lot of trouble for laughing. If I'm humming the opposition's that shot, it, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating weekend of rugby once again. I wouldn't want to call either of those two games. It's, I mean, I'll call the England one now. England will win, and won convincingly. Ireland would be favourites, but hey, that, that hasn't counted for a huge amount so far.
1: What did you make of Scotland? Um, because in years gone by, that's a game... That they would have lost, but they, they showed a certain amount of character to pull that one out. Given the start that that the French had, we'll talk about the French in a minute. But but given the start they had, I was really impressed with the way Scotland got themselves in a winning position there.
2: Yeah, and I think Gregor Townsend needs to take a bit more credit. This is first Six Nations. He's only as an intern as a Six Nations coach. He's only two games into it. He's learned a huge amount from week one, and admittedly he would have got that wrong, but. To be able to rally the troops and get them to perform at a level whereby they blew away France in the air, not blew them away, but battered France, I found, in the last quarter, was brilliant. Um, Physically, completely blunt last week. And they were bully boys against a big French team who emotionally, off the back of what happened the week before, had a point to prove. Um, The only concern I've got for Scotland is how they manage and kind of choreograph their way through the game. Sending Greg Laidlaw to 10, it's not a good message for Finn Russell. It was the right decision. I thought that was,
1: was tactically, from a coaching point of view, absolutely the
2: right thing to do, wasn't it? Perfect thing to do. For Finn Russell, you know, you're a general, you're a leader. Essentially, the coach is saying we need someone else at 10 because we don't trust that you lack the control which we need to win this game
1: or he does something different in the first 60 minutes which is what he which is what he offers
2: maybe greg laidlaw's scotland's finisher at 10 in the final 20 um but as a 10 i think that would just dent you a little bit but he, regardless of any of that um, Scotland managed to find a way, and they went back to a power game that was really good. France's discipline was appalling. Gu- Guillaume Garado, I think, is quoted in saying, we will not win a single game in the Six Nations if we don't sort our discipline out. And I tend to agree, because um, they had their fair share of possession, scored a couple of decent tries, but their discipline let them down in the last 20.
1: Yeah, the French, and utter shambles. The overriding view from the outside, which we have, is that Jacques Brunel has added absolutely nothing so far during his spell as coach.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that. Um, they found themselves in a position to win the game against Ireland, didn't, but didn't play well. They've scored three tries as Six Nations. None of that's been orchestrated by fluent rugby. It's all been individual brilliance. You can't rely on that in international rugby to win a game. You need a decent set piece. You need a pack that can fight and give you front football for 80 minutes. And You need your backs to be able to orchestrate and be able to get those combinations together to be able to give people space. Teddy Thomas isn't going to do that every single week. They've, they've been poor. Um, Gerardo's frustrated. Um, yes, there's stuff going off the pitch. He's dropped seven guys um, from the squad for next week. It, I get so frustrated whenever I talk about France because you kind of harp back to the 80s and the 90s. But as an international team, they're the closest thing you'll ever see to barbarian side. Loads of quality, haven't a clue what will happen at the weekend. And I'm not even French, so I don't know how they feel supporting their team around the Six Nations. Loads of hope, a new era, a brand new coach, a new squad, Jalibet. Oh gosh, no, he went off after 25 minutes. You're kind of back to square one after two weeks.
1: Um, The next weekend of the Six Nations, France-Italy, Friday night in Marseille. Uh, Ireland against Wales, Scotland against England, much more chat before then. The Aviva Premiership. I was sitting in the commentary box at Twickenham before the match on Saturday and somebody said, it was actually Aid, Aid the Stat, Lord Aid the Stat, who um, uh, uh, moves across to ITV for big bucks on Six Nations weekends. And he came on, he was he was a welter of excitement. He said, he said um, I, won't, I won't bother with the accent. Not that it would matter anyway, because nobody else knows what he, what he sounds like. But he said, Worcester have just won an Exeter. And it took me 60 seconds to digest what had happened. Worcester
2: have won at Exeter. Just the most extraordinary
1: result of the season so
2: far. Oh, it certainly was. Um, You know, we've got this BT Sport Predictor, which you can get involved in if you're listening to this. Do it. Um, Well, do it, but don't do it, because then you'll see how bad it was.
1: By 20 points. (laughs) No, I did. Go and check. I pressed the wrong button. Did you?
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, you got extra points for that. Yeah,
1: but not um, by 20,
2: sadly. Oh, my goodness. Fair play to you. I think you might have been the only person. But I'll tell you what, that's a result which affects not just the bottom of the table, because they're now clear by 12 points from London Irish. And, you it's know. It's a dreadful it's result for Irish, awful, isn't it? Awful. Absolutely awful. But it affects the top. Exeter have been, you know, they've been swimming, they've, they've been going through this league quite comfortably. Um, home form's outstanding. No one would have expected that. Perhaps they didn't, but maybe that was the reason. They're slightly complacent. Uh, Rob is fairly candid in what he said about it, but fair play to Worcester. Um, the start of the season, they were poor. hard comes back. It's not quite as simplistic as this, but, you know, a new lease of life, a place and wonderful rugby.
1: Brilliant. Chiefs out-muscled at Sandy Park, and, uh, you know, that doesn't happen very often in the uh, in the premiership. You were at um, the Stoop on Sunday. Bizarre game. The, the moment Kyle Eastman gets red-carded, you're thinking, this is going to be Quinns by 15, 20 points.
2: Yeah, and it. I'm not going to say it should have been, but that's what would normally happen. But I've thought about this long and hard, actually. I watched the game back on Monday and just watched the body language of both sets of teams. And it's quite an interesting point. Well, I think it's interesting. When you get a man simbit, the first thing you do is problem solve. Bring everyone in. How are we going to remedy this? How are we going to sort this out? Um, Who's going to cover the backfield? What are we going to do with a field scrum? You go through that because you train it. You never, when you're the team, that have just profited off that. So, Quinns probably didn't have a game plan, but there probably should have been a greater conversation about how we can exploit the space a bit more. They didn't do that. But all power to Wasps. They were just superb. um, Down to... Down to 40 men for 65 minutes, five tries. Let's name some top players. Cipriani was very good. Yeah. Vili LaRue, by the way. He's yeah. just a joy to watch. Yeah. His running lines, his handling, his pace on the ball. Two tries saving tackles. Jack Willis. Yeah. You know, if WAS fans are maybe frustrated or annoyed or maybe not sure as to why James Haskell's leaving... Well, Jack Willis, my goodness! I mean, he's a proper athlete, physical, both with ball in hand and tackling. They, they were just very, very good.
1: Yeah. The other headline for me over the weekend was Gloucester beating Leicester. Maybe not so much of a surprise, but into the top four. And you're thinking, oh, hang on a minute, they might be in the playoffs at the end of the season.
2: Yeah, they're a top four team for me. Um, playing really, uh, playing some really good rugby. They go to Worcester this weekend. Two top sides going against one another, um, but. I'm thrilled. I've got no affiliation with Gloucester, but f- for years have been saying it, and I'm sure they've been saying it, you want their team to be as big as their club. Infrastructure around the place is wonderful. We know what the shed brings them, and now the players are delivering. They're in a great spot. They
1: are. on, um, too badly placed. They, um, they got an important win at, at the Midaski. We'll be with them on Friday night. BT Sport One against Saracens, who had a pretty regulation win against against Newcastle. Took some time, but... But pulled away in the end, Uh, and Bath as well, with Banana Man um, continuing to do decent stuff towards the end of his Bath career.
2: Yeah, there was always this conversation about how you might want to produce your best rugby as you're leaving, just because you want to keep your legacy intact. Freddie Burns man the match, pulling the strings. Northampton, fair play, they were dominant in the first half. But Bath, a massive game for them, emotionally as well as points wise, they were just too strong, too good, too accurate. Um. Let's talk about some
1: breaking news that we've had over the last 24 hours. And uh, we're going to get on to Danny Cipriani in a minute, confirming that he's leaving Wasps. We've given uh, him his own section, the Cipriani section. But other other bits of news this week include Leicester finding a new forwards coach um, from Bristol, the Kiwi, Mark Bakewell. And if you talk to anybody who's been coached by Mark Bakewell, any of those boys um, who were at Bath a few years ago when when he was down at the wreck, They only say good things about Mark Batewell. So that seems like a a really astute signing for Leicester. And he's there now straight away. They don't have to wait until the end of the season. Mark Batewell is now coaching Leicester. Uh, But player-wise, we knew that they were bringing in Will Spencer uh, from Worcester, Guy Thompson from Wasps at the end of the season. We've learned this week that they're getting David Denton as well from Worcester. And, And once again, they are restocking the shelves with big, grizzly forwards.
2: Yeah, I guess the frustration for Leicester is, but it's good that they've identified it and sorted it quickly. Spent a lot of money in their backs, but a huge amount in their forwards. And your backs are only going to play if the forwards do their job. Doesn't matter what area we're in, the rugby will always remain the same. If you want to understand what Dave Denton's about, watch the last 20 minutes of France against Scotland, or Scotland against France. He is a powerhouse. Dave, Got gone for a, the same type of forward in all three of those signings. Big, powerful, athletic. That's what's been missing this season. That's what those three players will bring next.
1: Uh, so Cipriani on his way. Uh, no great surprise. It's, it, 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 it had been signalled for a while. Um, I know. You, I know you talk a lot to Danny. Uh, has he asked your advice? If, if you were, were going to tell him where he should go and play, what have you, what have you been saying? What would you say?
2: Um, I chatted him um, earlier today, um, and I asked him as to whether England. Um, would play on his mind and perhaps skew or decide what he does. It doesn't. I think Danny's perhaps at peace about the fact that he's probably not going to play for England. He's playing some brilliant rugby, no sniff. Not called in at any point. Barbarians, Argentina, follow week, no chat. So, Danny's at a place where he's been at two clubs in the Premiership now. Cell, he made a big difference. Was he's had a huge impact so he now wants to go to another place, a new challenge, whereby he can have a similar impact, um, help um, coach and get the younger players better, mentor them, as well as win stuff. He really just wants to enjoy his rugby, whether that's in this country or abroad. He's not short of offers. He's just real excited.
1: Pete Gosman says, get up to um, Glasgow Warriors. He'd be a great addition. He'd enjoy the fast game, fast-paced game that we play on that, on that surface as well. That'd be interesting. I'm not sure whether Glasgow have got the cash to get a Danny Cipriani up there, but it's an interesting thought.
2: Oh, Absolutely, is they play exactly the same way, in which he'd want to play. Um, great surface up there. Ali Price inside him. So uh, Matawalu out on the wing. Yeah, a decent option. Alex
1: Chinnery. Uh, here's another view. I've heard he's a massive sushi fan, uh, and has recently got into sumo
2: wrestling. Is that is that fake news? Do you do you know that? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure about Japan. I know uh, Dan Carter's in Japan. Maybe there's only one room for one DC over there, but. They pay pretty well. They'd make an attractive offer, no doubt. Uh,
1: John Fisher, move abroad, not going to get back into the England side. One last big contract in France. What do, you, what do you
2: think? I think that's decent advice. I don't think he will play for England. That's what we've seen over the last couple of years. If I was a Wasp fan, I'd want him to leave England because I wouldn't want to play against Danny Cipriani next season. Yeah. Um, I'd be packing his bags for him. But wherever he goes, it's a decision made solely for him, selfishly and rightly so, somewhere that he's going to be happy and he can win some trophies. Is, is
1: there any club in the Premiership who could call him and say, come to us? that would be of interest to him, you think? Or, or without that that carrot of the England cap, is the idea of going to a Montpellier or a La Rochelle and enjoying some sunshine just, just too big a price?
2: Um, there's a couple of clubs. Sale, mm. I think I think he would have a huge impact there. You, you see their back line as to whether he's welcome, I don't know. Um, Worcester. Worcester plays a wonderful rugby. New coaching staff. They could really do with a top class 10. As to whether that's going to suit him, I don't know.
1: Imagine Cipriani and Hohar together.
2: It'd oh, be brilliant. <laughs> be absolutely magic. Um, if I was Wust, I'd be getting out my check, but whatever he costs, I'd be making sure he gets paid it. Bentio's not going to be there forever. You know, there's rumours as to where he might be playing his rugby next season. Whatever he's getting paid, give it to Danny. Uh, where are you this weekend? We're working together, aren't we? We're working together, okay. yeah. Uh, Leicester against Wasp, a huge, huge match-up. Leicester-Quins. Oh, my gosh. It's Leicester-Quins.
1: Um, a massive game. Sale against Saracens is what we open up with on Friday. You're not going up to Manchester? No, not keen. Yeah, neither am I. <laughs> uh, Northampton, London Irish, and Worcester-Gloucester, you've already mentioned the other games on Saturday. And then Wasps, exeter um, our um, third game of the weekend, half-past two, BT Sport 1 and 4K U. Are you Are not doing that one? I'm not, no. cooking Sunday lunch for Lucy making up for tonight?
2: Yeah, absolutely. She'll need more than just a box of chocolates, I think.
1: <laughs> it's been a pl- I can't imagine spending Valentine's night with anybody else. <laughs> you have been the dream date. It's been a lot of fun, But yeah. we've got to move on for the second sitting. Thank you for listening to uh, tonight's Rugby Tonight podcast. Um, I'll be back next week, joined by Big Lol the Lord Mayor of London um, in the leafy surroundings of Barnes. Uh, he owns most of that place, so um, he's opening up the village that he owns in southwest London. Uh, subscribe to the podcast as well and you'll get it delivered um, to whatever device you listen to us on every Thursday morning. And um, Please, please, please give us a nice review, five-star rating. Thank you, Yeeks Cheers, Nick. It's been a pleasure. And we'll um, see you at the weekend. Hey,